Welcome to today's edition of NewsQuest Investigates. I'm going to be talking to a very interesting character. If you use YouTube or if you follow you know, crime and prisons and particular drugs, you will know of this man, Sean Atwood. I've spoken to Sean a number of times now. I did an interview with him in relation to Jimmy Savile and more recently in relation to Madeleine McCann for his podcast. He has a very interesting and colourful past. This is a man who grew up and moved to America, and then he entered the world of drugs, particularly ecstasy and the rave scene. That landed him in trouble. It caused him to go to jail, and subsequently he was deported from the US to the UK. He has since built up a reputation, a reputation of a man who combats the wrongdoing. He has a strong moral compass. That's not a moral compass that necessarily everybody will agree with, but for him, it is a moral compass, and he's very much a crusader going against paedophiles and those people who commit sexual offences against children. He has podcast, he has YouTube channel, he has a huge following on social media. So I'm delighted to welcome Sean. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, he should be joining um, us. There he is. <laughs> we just, we, you know, we just have a technical difficulty at the moment. Um, I'm just trying to see where Sean is at the moment. Okay, we've lost Sean shortly. for the moment. He'll be with us very shortly. So if you're following this, do please ask questions. I'll be putting them to Sean throughout. Uh, we'll get Jamil back in and Jamil will put those questions. So use the hashtag AskMark and we'll stop at regular interviews intervals to be able to take those questions and put them to Sean. How are we doing? Is Sean ready to come back on? No, he's not. So one of the things I'm going to talk to Sean about is this whole situation of policing today. You know, the current confidence that the public have in the police. Many of you will have seen the video the other day when there was a motorbiker and this guy was riding alongside a police car, no helmet, and doing wheelies, gooding the police really. And the police followed for a short distance before they pulled off and then subsequently uh, left that vehicle to... To, to go along and presumably probably continue to pull wheelies at a speed. The question I asked, and it was put through my social media page, was, was that right? Was it right that the police pulled off and let him carry on? Or should they have tried to follow or even stop in some capacity? Well, there's been a lot of criticism over the years, of course, of police when they've got into pursuits and some of those sad endings of pursuits, even though, even though there's criminals who have perhaps stolen a car or stolen the motorbike, is that the individual has ended up dying. And there, of course, is an inquiry in relation to that. So there are very strict rules now in terms of when police can engage in a pursuit and when the and the appropriateness, of course, of those officers that can do it. There are specially trained officers that are there to do that. And on this occasion, the control room told the officer to pull away and let that motorbike carry on. Now, there are some very good photographs because the whole event was filmed and there's some very good photographs of the individual's face. Probably enough to be able to identify who they are, to be able to go and get them at a later date. But it does ask that very serious question is, is at what point does the confidence get lost in the police? At what point do the police lose that public confidence? And we have to have, and I say we, you know, in a collective way for the police, the police have to have the confidence of the public because as soon as they've lost the confidence of the public, that is when they've lost the fight. 
Let's see whether Sean Atwood is back. Is he ready? I am back and ready. I have no idea what happened there, Mark, but I have been under attack by hackers. My cable company sent me a a letter about um, the attacks during our live streams, the Atwood Unleashed show. And as soon as I was about to come on your show, the screen just went nuts. I have no idea what just happened here. Well, brilliant, Grayson. Sean, it's great to have you back. The little intro that I gave, obviously, I've I've known you for some time now. I've been on two of your shows on when you when you did the one on Jimmy Savile and more recently on Madeline McCann. I, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Let's go right back to the very beginning. I'd like people really to kind of get to know the Sean Atwood. What drives the Sean Atwood? So let's start. So you, uh, as a young lad, make your way over to America. Is that for out of choice or did you have to go there? Well, my entrepreneurship started in high school when I'd run over to the sweet shop, get some bonbons and purr drops, run back to school, sell them for twice the price. And then I got interested in the stock market at 14, started trading at 16, borrowed 50 quid off my nan, put it in BT shares when Maggie Thatcher was privatizing them. So I was hooked from that age, went down the library in my hometown, witness, uh, ordered dozens of books on the subject. And then I set my sights on the States because that was like the mecca of finance, you know, New York, Wall Street. I'd seen that movie, Wall Street, Gordon Gecko, Greed is Good. And my value system was warped. I had this materialistic thing whereby if I didn't become a millionaire by the age of 30, I was going to kill myself. And, you know, later on, I realized that money is not the meaning of life. Happiness is in your heart and what your thoughts make it. But there was a hell of a journey to get there, Mark. Yeah. So you went to the Big Apple with the idea that you were going to be the next Wall Street, you know, the man that was going to make the money. But it didn't turn out that way, did it? So I wanted to go to the Big Apple to be an investment analyst, but my family members were in Arizona. So we ended up going to Arizona and becoming a stockbroker. Have you seen that movie, Wolf of Wall Street? Yes, very good. Started out in a penny stock outfit like that, where the boss was like a mafia don with these power sales meetings. And he'd be screaming at us, lunches for wimps. If you're taking breaks, other brokers are calling your clients. You've got to dial 500 numbers a day to find clients. We had to have uh, curly cords, like 16-foot curly cords, because pacing brokers make the most money. We had to have mirrors on our desks, because smiling brokers make the most money. It was absolutely mental. We had to be in the office, 6 o'clock in the morning sales meeting, call 500 numbers a day, and sometimes I was there till 9 or 10 at night. Gosh. And how old were you then? I I was fresh out of uni. I was in my early 20s. I'm in this office full of feisty New York Italians. Biker gangs are delivering crystal meth to these guys and cocaine, like Hell's Angels, Dirty Dozen. Whenever there's a celebration, we're downstairs in a limo after the strip club. And I'm thinking this is like a normal work environment. This is what adults do. (laughs) But that that must have kind of thrown your mind. You know, you go from... From being in the UK, we didn't have any of that. And then suddenly you're in a world where you're being surrounded by drugs, you're being surrounded by alcohol and, and partying. Did you fit into that world? Did it cause you any anxiety? Well, I had social anxiety from a teenager. I was almost beat to death by some drunks. I'd just gone up to fill my mum's little red car with some petrol, just passed my driver's licence test. And these big rugby player-sized lads in the 20s start to behave abusively towards me. 
And I thought it was brave to stand up to them, but it was a mistake. They got me on the floor, kicking me in the head. One pulled out an iron bar, smashed me in the face. Which is why I've got these nice veneers on my teeth, where they knock pieces of my teeth out. Mm. Anyway, they left me for dead um, in a pool of blood. They smashed my car windows. And after that, I wouldn't go up and talk to women. I wouldn't go up and dance. I was My social anxiety was compounded. But when the rave scene started in the UK and I took ecstasy, wouldn't stop dancing, wouldn't stop talking to strangers, hugging them, telling them our stories all night long. And that became the reoccurring theme throughout my life, Mark. I was this wild and crazy party person on the surface. But under the surface, when I was off the drugs, I was back to this anxious person who was scared to be around people. And the mm. therapist in prison, you know, helped me identify this cycle. And throughout my life, you know, I was self-medicating for this trauma of almost being beat to death was one of the it's, it's more complex than that but that was one of the reasons but getting enmeshed into that party scene i started to see the profit opportunity you know the opportunity cost of working these long hours in the stock market versus making money for the rave scene and right. ecstasy was going for 25 30 dollars in the clubs in arizona and I, in the beginning, I was just showing off. I was still a stockbroker. I was buying the ecstasy for my mates. And, you know, 50 Were you using? Time. Oh, yeah, I was using from university. Right. Yeah, I mean, Ray, Ray, the Ray, I, I sat my finals, uh, economics, business studies. I sat my finals on the Monday after raving the whole weekend with coming down off the ecstasy with the beeps and beats from that music still going off in my brain. Gosh. So you, your era would have been the mass rave era when the house parties and, and those types? The late 1980s, the summer of love, yeah. 89. And then I went to America in 1991. So you're already a, a drug user. Did you go any anything other than ecstasy or was it very much ecstasy? So ecstasy and speed. So in England back then, and speed's very different in America. It's crystal math. So in England... When we went to this club called the Thunderdome, Oldham Road, Manchester, my first getting high was taking a white dove ecstasy pill and they gave you a, a gram of Billy Whiz, they called it, and you just necked it and I think we had a Lucasade with it or something and then we ate the pill with it as well. And that's how raving became my religion because I went from this shy, anxious person to someone who didn't want, even want to go to the toilet and have a peek because I didn't want to stop dancing. I'm just dancing all night long. Oh. And um, this was whilst you at at college, at school? At university, yeah. Like I said, I, I sat my final, my final exams. And did you pass? Coming down off ecstasy. Got a 2-1 with honours. No. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So you end up in Arizona, and you're now entering the party scene in Arizona. That started to take over your life? Well, for five years, I worked diligently as a stockbroker until I was. I went from living off cheese and toast and bananas. It was commission only. I wasn't making any money the first couple of years. Five years in, I'm grossing half a million a year in commission. Then I flew my best mate over from childhood, wild man, a maniac who, from teenage years, had red dots in his head telling him to hurt people. But we'd bonded at a very young age. He was like the youngest in our group, and his older brother used to beat him up, and I used to take care of him. So we'd had this bond. Otherwise, as an adult, if I'd have seen him, I probably would have crossed the road to avoid him because he was that scurry. So he, right. when we were kids, we used to go, there was a quarry at the top of Witness, Pexhill Quarry, and there was a tree overlooking the quarry we called the Thinking Tree. 
and we'd set our goals and I'd say to well man what are you going to do when you grow up he'd say oh I'm going to go to prison I've got these red dots in my head telling me to hurt people and him and his cousin Hammy had asked me what I'm going to go to America make a million and fly you guys over and I'm going to get you a job as a wrestler well man so you won't spend the rest of your life in prison so he, he went off to prison for five years I went off to America for five years we started making this money and then I flew him over and that's when things dramatically changed when he arrived how did it change all right so for example we got him a apartment to live at uh, a room in a house near the georgian dragon british pub uh, i'm thinking he's just gonna have a few beers with the expats and not getting into any trouble me and my girlfriend go over there uh, a couple of weeks into his stay and a bunch of mexicans answer the door and we're like where's peter that's wild man's name peter we're like who we're like where's peter he lives here peter there's no peter here and then they, they start displaying their guns and me and my girlfriend are backtracking across the road, shitting ourselves, while man just casually bounces over the street. And we're like, Peter, what's happened to your place, man? We nearly just got shot there. It's like, oh, they're the local crack dealers. They like to move around a lot. I've rented the place out to them. They're buzzing because I can do a $100 crack rock in one breath. It goes ding-a-ling-a-ling, sizzle-sizzle, and it calms me red dots down. And they're giving me all this free crack. And, he, and, he, and the one at the back there is a Colombian who's running the group and he wants to invest in the stock market. I'm just shaking my head thinking, oh my God, Peter. But, but even worse, two or three months in, I'm working in the office. I get a call from my aunt. Peter's place is headline news. There's yellow tape around it. Someone's been shot dead. You need to get your ass up there. So I sped up there in my sports car and there was the news crews, there was the cops, there was the tape, there was loads of people. And I shit myself because I had drugs in the car and stuff. So I went back to work. I went back later in the day when there was hardly anyone there. There was blood on the step. And I walk in and there was a homicide detective talking to Wild Man. The homicide detective told me one of the most gruesome stories I've ever heard in my life. Um, we could get to that if you want later on. But um, once the homicide detective had left, I said to Wild Man, what happened? He said a couple had come over to buy crack, but the Mexicans had moved back over the street. The woman... She went to get the crack over the street and left the boyfriend with Wildman. He had a gun on him. And he said to the he said to the, the fella, you know, I'm from England, we don't have guns in England. Can you show me how it works? And he goes, Yeah, the safety's on. And he pulled the trigger and shot himself in the head in front of Wildman. Fell dead on the step. What? Yeah, shot himself dead. Fell dead on the step. Deliberately? Uh, accidentally, it was ruled an accident because they did. You know, they obviously did all the gunpowder tests and everything. This guy yeah. shot himself, and um, it was ruled uh, an accident. Gosh! So, what type of money are you making at this stage? My commission in the stock market now is in is in the uh, half a million. Was the most commission I made in one year? Gosh! And where's your moral? It. Gone. Invest you invested it in. So I, I decided to go full time into the ecstasy and rave scene, and I invest that invested it in uh, my money though. I invest that in technology shares. Now this is the dot com bubble. So now I'm throwing raves, importing ecstasy, and looking at my stock market portfolio of tech shares. And some days I'd wake up and I'd be up six figures. So I'm living in a million dollar house on the side of a mountain, got a jacuzzi, got a swimming pool. And, you know, I'm in my late 20s. I've got no common sense. I've got no emotional maturity. I think I'm living like a character out of Pulp Fiction. We're joking. We're never going to get caught. We're above the law. 
but it always comes to an end. And that's what I tell the kids. You know, I do talks in schools now. I'm not trying to glamorize mm. this, Mark. And I scare the living daylights out of them with what happened to me and, and the consequences and the things that happen in the jails when you get caught, especially in America. So where's, where's your, and we'll move on to, to your jail in a moment, but where's your moral compass? You start now dealing in drugs. Where's your moral compass in this? Is it gone out the window? Do you think, do you know what, actually, it's fine to be a drug dealer. I'm earning a lot of money. I don't really care. So what happens, Mark, is it's a, it's a slow and gradual process where drugs start out fun at first and the pe- the pain the pleasure is high and the pain is very low, the side effects. But over time, they reverse. Uh, so to keep, you're always trying to get back to that when the pleasure was very high. high. The first time you take drugs, it's the highest. Yeah. So to try and get back there, you increase your intake. You add more drugs to the mix, such as ketamine, Xanax, LSD, mushrooms, whatever it is. You're doing more quantities, you're moving on to harder drugs, and you, you're surrounding yourself with people who are on that same trajectory. So you're yeah. all reinforcing each other's insane behavior. So this goes for me being a student now, just popping one ecstasy pill, to throwing raves for tens of thousands of people, got 200 people working for me, throwing after parties that last for days on end, where we go to a hotel room, take down all the paintings and there's a different pile of drugs on every painting and everyone's just reinforcing each other's insanity so your conscience is eroded your value system is eroded your ability to think rationally is eroded drugs slowly put a cloud in your head that you don't know is there and until the SWAT team came and I sobered up in the jail and looked back on the past 10 years I was like how on earth am I still alive what the hell have you just done it's interesting you talk about that high. You know, I, I spent some time in Grendon Prison talking to the most dangerous sex offenders, and, and something that a number of them said is that, yeah, they relate their offending behavior very much to using drugs, is that the very first time they commit their sexual offense, that's the high they get. And then they're constantly trying to reach that high again afterwards. And, and there was a they were making that comparable between them, and, and many of those actually were, were drug-dependent individuals as well. I want to talk in terms of of cartels. I want to talk in terms of where you get your drugs from. So there's a Netflix series, and you probably know it, Ozark, which I think is brilliant. The last series wasn't so good, but the the other series have been brilliant. How did you get into the world of supplying, being distributor? And did you enter a world that was pretty scary? I mean, you, you cross them and you cross them with your life. Yeah, I'll get to that. I just want to say one thing. Um, the number one drug in all sex crimes, ranging from date rape to, you know, the worst things, is alcohol. Just want to make clear, that clear for the viewers. All right, so there was a crossover point whereby I was still a stockbroker. And Wildman, he'd, he'd gone through a couple of properties by now. And he settled in Tempe, Arizona, in this massive apartment complex called Rancho Murrieta. So I've got Wildman over there, and we've got multiple apartments in this complex where people are, you know, people who work for me are living them, or people are storing drugs, whatever. So we're having an apartment. Um, no, I'll, I'll do this one first. I get a call at the office. It's an apartment um, where a guy called Fish and Seth live, and they they both work for me. And Fish says, "Can you get Wildman and come over here? We've got a situation." And I say. What's the situation? Can't stay on the phone. Just get him as soon as possible. It's urgent. So I go looking for Wildman. 
Wild Man later on I found out he was collecting uh, crack debts for the Colombians, Colombian guy in, in Central Phoenix with Seth. So I shoot over to Fishy's on my own. Fish answers the door of his girlfriend. His girlfriend's crying. I think, oh shit, you know, someone's sexually assaulted her. And me and you, Mark, we campaign for the kind of bastards that commit those crimes. And you know, that affects me. And um, so I'm looking at him and thinking, right, they probably want Wild Man to find this guy and beat him up. Then I hear this noise. I'm looking and there's another room and they're like, you better go and look. So I walk into this room and there's a naked man hogtied with a rockabilly quiff. He's gagged and I've never seen such terror in someone's eyes. There is a tall guy who is an associate of the New Mexican Mafia. I can give you the story of how I clicked up with them. Um, if you want, but this tall guy, he's got gray, stately, swept back silver hair, and he's giving orders to a bunch of Mexicans who've got cattle prods, and when he gives the order, they electrocute this guy, piss shoots out of his dick as they electrocute him, and he rocks up and down like a rocking horse with this terror in his eyes, and I'm thinking, right, you know, I'm shitting myself, but I can't portray that i can't let them see that because then they're going to think i'm a liability and something like this might happen to me so i'm putting this front on like i said inside i'm this anxious person but on the drugs you know i've got this false bravado so i'm trying to put this false bravado on so i'm looking at the guy with the silver hair and he's giving me like a smile like welcome to the crime family smile and um, i say you looks like you've got this under control I'll, I'll tell wild man you know what's going on but i've got to get back to the office and on the way out i said to fish what the hell's going on and Fish said that the, those guys were supplying him drugs like weed and coke. I was supplying the ecstasy. The guy on the floor was a customer who scouted the location out and come back when he thought the guy at Fish wasn't there and tried to rob their drugs and tried to rob my drugs. Fish had caught him. Fish had called me. He'd called them and they got there first. And then what they did was they contacted the guy's roommates and said, look, you need to pay up 10 grand or this guy's going to end up in the desert. And the 10 grand was paid up. But I was at a crossroads in my life then, Mark. And like you said about, you know, having a value system and, and a conscience and all that. And because I was on the drugs and the drugs was telling me, you know, this is like a scene out of a movie. I was haunted all the way back to the office by that guy's eyes. I was in fear. But the drugs and all the fun I was having outside of that danger was just pushing me on. It was emo total emotional immaturity. And did you get attacked? Did anyone ever attack you? Did they, they, anyone turn on you? So I had my own security team. You know, there was Wild Man. The New Mexican Mafia had my back. Um, I had 20 bouncers, uh, you know, at any time that I could call on who were armed. And so, you know, people... At the peak of it, I was living in my house... And I had a right-hand guy called Cody Bates. He's dead now. Wild Man's dead now. Most of my friends from back then are dead now because we were living such crazy lives. Cody Bates had rented an apartment just for the cash. He would do the rounds, drop off the stuff, put the cash in the apartment, come to see me in my house. We never talked on the phone. And if there was a problem, you know, Wild Man and some of the enforcers would go to that person's house. And one of the things was Wild Man would just move in with them. He was so, um, everywhere he went, he but it accidentally set it on fire. He, houses were blown up. Um, if, he, if Wild Man moved in with you, 
the, the New Mexican Mafia will be coming, your TV will be getting taken out in front of your eyes, there'll be people cooking up crack in your kitchen, he'd throw parties in there 24-7, all the street people, he, he would take over, he was like king of the street people, all the street people would be in there, gangbangers, striptease girls, and it wouldn't end, so... Wildman didn't actually have to beat people up. The, the big threat was with people who owed us money was that he would move in with them, and that's what he did. Gosh. And what's happening to your family at this stage? Because I think you moved over to live with your gran initially, didn't you, in the, in the US? And what about your family? Aunts. What was your family situation? I had two aunts and um, oh, my parents. Oh. In my Banged Up Abroad episode, it shows a scene where I'm in the big house with the swimming pool, and my parents come over, and there's a knock at the door. And I say, we're watching some Bruce Willis movie in the living room or somewhere. And I say, same parents just keep watching it because I, I look through the people and I see some people that I'm not familiar with, but I could tell they're from the drug community. So at this point, you know, this is Arizona. Everyone's got guns. I had a concealed weapons permit. I was trained to shoot by ex-cops. And I had shotguns. I had a Glock handgun. Uh, they say shotguns best for home protection. So I said to my parents, keep watching this movie, grab my shotgun hoping my mum and dad, you know, won't won't notice while they're watching this movie, opened the door to these guys, and they were looking for a guy called Acid Joey, who, another guy, a friend of mine who's dead, who was my first connect uh, locally in Arizona. And they said, where's Acid Joey? I said, he doesn't live here. Well, they said, well, he owes us money. I said, well, he owes me money. And I'm wielding this shotgun. I said, look, I'll tell him you've, you've called, but um, please don't come back here. And they see I'm wielding the shotgun, and they, they back off and they left. But when I turned around with the shotgun, my mum and dad are watching and you know their eyes are popping out their heads and i said mom this is arizona it's really dangerous here there's a lot of road even you know in the summer when the heat goes up the road rage people are shooting at each other a lot of people have handguns in the in the glove compartments a lot of people have shotguns at home for home protection but my mom she was worried after that she was worried. It was, it was, there was something on her mind. She must she have know. known something was going on. She must have known, or your dad. They must have thought, do you know what? There's more to this. She said it was, there was something on her mind, but I explained it well. And what I said to them was that I was throwing raves, which I was, and I was investing in rave parties. Because before the drugs thing really started, the whole criminal organization came about because all these little competing rave cliques in Arizona. They called me the Bank of England and they would come to me to invest in their projects. And when those little cliques fell out, me and Wildman would adjudicate. They'd come in, these cliques, and we and Wildman would adjudicate their beefs and, and, you know, determine what would happen. But by doing so, we incorporated all these little cliques into our enterprise. And that's how we had so many people working for us at the peak of it. So there comes a time when the everything finally catches up with you you the, the police come banging on your door may 16th 2002 and i'd actually quit the importation mark a year before i got caught i thought you had to get caught with the drugs i was naive to the statute of limitations so in arizona statute of limitations is seven years and, and so before you do that why why did you stop why did you stop a year before okay if you if you watch any of these movies that's you know about um the drug lifestyle then there's an arc, isn't there? The glitz, the glamour in the beginning, the partying, the beautiful women, it's fun. And then the competition comes in and the feds come in and they're getting followed and there's helicopters and competition are trying to wipe you out. And in my case, Sammy the Bull Gravano's enterprise, you may have heard of him, underboss for John Gotti, the Gambino crime family, 
their enterprise is the one who's set up in competition with mine. And we've just done a 90-minute documentary with the Discovery Channel about that, where they interviewed all my family members. They've interviewed all Sammy the Bull's family members. And that's coming out this summer. And then once it gets through that point then, where you know people are getting hurt by the competition or whatever, um, and in my case, Sammy the Bull's crew knocked out. They lured the salesperson, my top salesperson, to a nightclub in Scottsdale under the pretext of doing a deal, took him into the men's room, knocked his teeth out, took his ecstasy, took his money. And that's when the war with those guys was on. So by the time um, I'd quit the importation, things were getting really hurry. I had a lawyer. She said she had a contact in the DEA and they were really hot for me. And I'd met a woman who'd fallen in love with and she was scared of it. I kept her separate from the business. She was scared of it. And she said, look, if you really love me, why don't we just move to LA, get away, get the hell away from all this? And I was in college studying Spanish. I was back at the gym. I was doing kickboxing classes. I was getting back in shape. Um, but unfortunately, May 16th, 2002, there was the knock on the door. And you were still in Arizona then or you'd moved? Yeah, I was in Scottsdale. I was on my computer. I was back, you know, doing some day trading. All of a sudden, bam, 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 bam. 10 Police Department, we've got a warrant, open the door. Look through the people, it's blacked out. Go to, the, I'm thinking, is this the cops or is it drug, you know, people thinking I've got drugs and mm. money and they come to rob, pretend to be the cops. So I run to the window, entire complex is surrounded. Walk through to the bedroom, to my girlfriend, we're like, what are we going to do? We better let them in. We're walking back for the living room and then just boom, door just flies off the hinges. Hands above your heads, get on the ground now, don't move. And they crushed me, and the detective, who I later learned from the paperwork, was my nemesis. I mean, this guy, literally, I'd be in an Indian restaurant, he'd be on the table next to me, I learned from the police paperwork, list, trying to listen to me. He hoisted me up by the handcuffs, and he gets in my face, and he's like, English, Sean, we've finally got you, you big name from the racing. Because they've been on my case for, since 96, 97, so mm -hmm. five years. Five years, yeah, before before he got me. So I start yelling to my girlfriend, I'm exercising my right to remain silent, love. I'm exercising my right to remain... Everyone who worked for me was school. We had lawyers on standby. You know, if you got arrested, exercise your right to remain silent, we will bail you out. Um, we had legal, They called it legal benefits. And that's why some of the people, they didn't work for Sammy the Bulls people because we had legal benefits if they got arrested. So they threw me down the stairs, basically, because I'm, I'm screaming at my girlfriend. I'm excited. My right to remain silent. But that's when the, uh, the journey into Sheriff Joe Arpaio's Maricopa County jail system began. Have you heard of Sheriff Joe, Mark? No. He's got them in the black and white stripes and the pink underwear. Okay. Right, feeds them green baloney with dead rats in the mystery meat slop, cockroaches crawling over us at night times. It was extreme. It was the jail that had the highest rate of death in America. Um, but I needed to go through such an extreme environment for it to get crushed out of me, that person to get crushed out of me and to reevaluate my uh, worldview and value system. So how long probably, did you get? I was facing a maximum 200-year sentence but these prosecutors, they like used car salespeople. They start out really high. They, you think you're never going to get out. And when I was offered um, a plea deal and I got sentenced to nine and a half years, that was one of the happiest days of my life. Because I thought I was never going to get my life back. I mean, when they told me I was looking at 200, 
I almost killed myself and I was going to slash my wrists and bleed out, but it was looking at the, the photos of my mum, dad, girlfriend, thinking my mum's going to get a call saying your son slashed his wrist in a foreign jail that stopped me from doing it. But I put myself in there. I'm not trying to whine here. The world hates a whiner. I take full responsibility for my actions, putting myself in that environment. And the extremity of it is what gave me a story, really, because... Um, the media interest began around my blog and my time in Sheriff Joe Pyro's jail. So, you know, you're interested in criminal justice issues, Mark. Um, before going to prison, I thought, you know, it's all like Shawshank Redemption. The media also shows that most prisoners are like predators, serial killers, murderers, rapists. And they, it's really easy to got PlayStation's gourmet food luxuries. That's how it pre, that it's portrayed in, in the UK. And yeah, you know, those prisoners are in there. But when I got in there and I saw the average arrest was a black kid, Mexican kid, with a joint of weed getting a two to five year sentence, I was wondering what the hell was going on. I had a cellmate who he got, um, he got, I think, almost two years for a, a roach. And when I got out and deconstructed the war on drugs and mass incarceration, about which I've written five books, I researched that at the height of the war on drugs back then, the highest arrest category in the history of criminal justice was weed possession. Almost yeah. a million arrests a year. Young people, not mm. the dealers, because they're harder to catch. And what do they do? They throw them in these jails where they get $60,000 a year of taxpayers' money per person. That's why they went after the lowest hanging fruit, the contracts with the private prisons in America and the tens of billions a year alone now. Yeah. And they kick down tens of millions to the Democrats and the Republicans a year in political contributions to keep those contracts rolling. This is why America's got one in 100 out. I mean, it's private prisons, and we've got it here now, private prisons are money-making businesses. You know, there's such money-making businesses that actually, you know, we want more people in jail in order for the private prisons. I mean, I, I think one of the worst things was to to privatise any elements of the prison service. Um, you know, it should still very much be a, a government run. So you're, you're in prison in a foreign country. You are sentenced to nine and a half years. Was that tough? Was Did people have a go at you? Was Were you having to watch your back all the time? I wasn't sentenced until my third year, Mark. It was a complex case with oh, okay. 100 co-defendants. So once you got arrested, you go in a subterranean um, thing called a horseshoe. So right. first thing is plexiglass window, little old lady screams in your face, you know, have you got lice? Have you got uh, HIV? Have you got hepatitis C? Have you got herpes? She's just screaming all these things at you. And um, then they take your belt off you, uh, your shoes, they strip search you, and the strip search is more intrusive. You know, having a podcast now and interviewing, you know, almost a thousand people, many of whom have been in prison in the UK. In America, the strip search, so you're completely naked in front of the guard, looks in your mouth, ears, armpits, raise your man parts, turn around, bend over, spread your buttocks wide open, cough. They're looking right up your backside to see if you're smuggling anything. Then there's the foreskin search, pull your foreskin back. I'm looking at the guy like, what? He's like, pull your foreskin back. I'm like, why? There could be drugs in there. So then you pull your foreskin back and they just, it's called Peter gazing, someone staring at your dick. It's like being visually raped. There was times, Mark, when I was strip searched three or four times a day. If you got a job in the kitchen, you strip searched on the way in and the way out, get a visit, strip searched on the way out. Um, yeah, and again, you know, but that's just part, you know, I, I did the crime, got to do the time, got to suffer the consequences. Was there violence around there in jail? Did you get attacked? 
so I go in and the it's all racial gangs. So it's drug gangs, you know, obviously there's more drugs in prison than you in the face of the earth and the, the drugs are run by the gangs. So in, in America, it's the whites, it's the Aryan Brotherhood, neo-Nazis. Blacks is the Mau Mau, this is in Arizona. Then you've got the Chicanos, the Mexican-Americans, and then you've got the Border Brothers or the Mexican Nationals, the Pisces. So because I'm white, some skinheads from the AB, Aryan Brother, come up to you right away. Hey, we want a word with you getting that cell over there. And you can't say no, or they just crack your head into the wall. So then they said to me, um, what are your charges? What are your charges? A charge on a, sh a sheet, a printout, you know, like conspiracy, crime syndicate, or all this kind of thing. I'm new to this. I don't understand what it means. So I say, I don't know what charges mean. That is a, not a good answer. Now they've got me well about to attack me. What do you mean you don't know what your charges mean? Are you a chomo? Are you a chomo? I don't even know what a chomo is at this point. So in the end, I pull out my charge sheet. They see him in for drugs. That's acceptable. Nearly everyone is in prison. It's drug-related these days. Then they explain all the rules. If someone calls you a punk, a bitch, or hits you, you must fight him on the spot or else the whole gang will attack you. Must take showers or they'll attack you for bad hygiene. Can't go make your friends with the guards. They'll attack you for snitching. Can't go sit at the tables of a racist. They'll attack you for that. So everything you take for granted about your safety is reversed. They're constantly looking for people to beat up because that's how they earn their tattoos. And to be a full member of the Aryan Brotherhood, you have to murder someone for them in the jail. So there was another guy who came in who, who um, they suspected was a chomo. They smashed him in the shower. They're just kicking him. They leave him whimpering in a pool of blood. And then this big guy with the cobwebs tattooed down his neck, all this Nazi stuff on him, says to the leader of the gang, is like, how come we can still hear him? Oh, we smashed him good, dog. Not good enough. And he goes in there. And it's, just trying, it's like he's trying to crack this guy's head open like it's a coconut. Just crack, crack, crack. And then when the guy gets taken out on a stretcher, there's not just blood coming out of his head. There's yellowish, something yellowish coming out of his head. And Mark, that was just the beginning. Every day, someone's head was getting smashed against the toilet or a body get hit in the water. So why didn't they attack the you? How did you get away? Because Wildman was in there with me, and Wildman was a maniac. And for the first year, I was in Towers Jail. I'll give you an example then. So there was a time when the Aryan Brotherhood um, got run out of our building by the Italian Mafia. It was a temporary time. And one of the uh, Italian Mafia enforcers, uh, Bruno, he, he saw me on Bang Up Abroad in America last year, and I've done five interviews with him on the channel now. And I've a I asked him about Wildman because we arranged for Catholic, a Catholic mass meeting with Wildman and the Italians because Wildman wasn't in my um, pod. And Bruno was sat one side of me. I'm in the middle. Wildman's at the other side of me. Wildman and Bruno shook hands so powerfully. I almost flew out of my seat. Bear in mind, Wildman, when he died approximately two years ago, he was 29 and a half stone and six foot two. His fists were twice the size of mine. And it was just all human teeth marks, scars, all, all down his fists. I mean, when he was a kid, he would just go down and fight with the bouncers and they come back black and blue. He just loved it. Just loved it. And how did he, how did Wildman die? So, you know, this is another thing I tell the kids in the schools. Um, the Wildman, he was my best friend from childhood. He was amazing on the channel the YouTube channel as a co-host because he would just say anything that come into his head. He was not politically correct at all. 
everyone respected him and loved him. He was even R.I.P. Wildman was trending on Twitter uh, when he died. But Wildman, he hammered it. Like I said earlier on, you know, $100 crack rock in one breath. He would, because we had unlimited money, he had unlimited drugs. So he would smoke meth, he would smoke crack, and he'd stay awake for up to two weeks at a time. When he got arrested, they put a stent in his heart. And when he got out, even though he quit the drugs, he was still hammering the alcohol. When we filmed podcasts together, he'd always insist that we go bargain booze before he went home. And he'd buy multi-litre bottles of gut rot cider. And um, I think, you know, the drugs and the alcohol, he was only in his 40s, the drugs and the alcohol did him. And in the end, it was multiple organ failure was the verdict. It's such an evil drug is alcohol. And you alluded to it earlier. I lost a very close friend of mine, Ian Royce, Roycey, um, a number of years ago from alcohol poisoning. And it took a long time for, for me to realize, actually, he was an alcoholic. But by the time I did, he, he ended up falling over, hit his head against a, a pavement, got mugged, and then never recovered from that and ultimately died as a result of, mm. of alcohol poisoning. Alcohol has a massive part to play. And I guess within your life, within the prison system alcohol slowly fr freeze slowly doesn't it flows freely so 90, approximately because i had a cellmate at one point who was a heroin user and i asked him said i want to do you know i want the stats on this you tell me or oh, everyone in these cells which who's shooting up and he went that those two are those two are those, those, those. it was 90 percent of the prisons i was housed that with were injecting heroin and that was coming from prison guards was that the main way drugs get in the prison are the staff. So this is what blew my mind as well was, you know, all these people are in here for drug offences. And what are they doing? The whole day revolves around getting the drugs in. The staff are bringing mm. it in. The dealers are making more money in here than they were outside. And it's just the only people this is working for, it's not working for society, it's not the only people it's working for is the, is the private prisons and all the, the hundreds of contractors around it. So two thirds of hepatitis C from shoving dirty needles interferon with the treatment was 30,000 a year so they just rather they die rather than pay the treatment get a healthy prisoner on that bunk to maximize their profits that's what i saw they won't give them the treatment unless they get lawyers in and, and by then the liver's so advanced they're going to die anyway i lost so many people so many friends are made in prison to deliver um killing them and then you've got spice everywhere now as well they're writing to me saying mm. that all the prisons all over the world are flooded with spice spice is terrible though isn't it i mean it, it, you see the effects of spice People just wigging out, foaming at the mm. mouth, attacking people. They don't even know what they've done the next day. It's bonkers. So you serve your sentence, you get released, and are you deported there and then out of the country? I had to go to a deportation facility, and then I was put on a plane from LA to London. There's videos on my YouTube channel. I'm all stubbled out, and I'm all bug-eyed, hugging my mum. Uh, my dad, my sister, mum's crying. In the car drive on the way out of the airport, my sister's ex showing me her phone, explaining what texting is. They take me to Indian food, and I ordered chicken tikka masala, my former favourite. But I got the gag reflex because of the dead rats mm. in the in the mystery meat slot we call Red Death in the jail. I actually converted to the Hindu religion in the jail to play the system to get a vegetarian religious diet. I was doing yoga at the same time. I still do yoga now. And uh, I've stayed vegetarian to this day after getting the gag reflex with the chicken tikka. But my blog, 
The activism, Mark, started when I said to a guard when I was in Max Security, Madison Street Jail, 2004, I said, how do you guys get away with this? Dead rats in the foods, you know, guards murdering mentally ill prisoners, um, cockroaches crawling over at night time. I'm not saying it should be easy, but it was extreme uh, human rights violations. And the guard said to me, the world has no idea what's going on in here and the public doesn't give a shit about prisoners. So with a tiny little pencil sharpened on my cell door, I started to write everything down. My aunt would come and visit me in max security. It's like behind the plexiglass, you know. But I was allowed to release property to her through the guard, so I hid what I wrote in like legal paperwork letters. She smuggled them out of Max, typed them up, sent them to my family in England. They put them online as a blog, John's Jail Journal, J-O-N, so it wasn't in my name, all time-stamped. So most of my journey through the incarceration system in Arizona is, is uh, still online, available, real-time, time-stamped mm -hmm. through these blogs. And then that sent me in this completely new direction then of exposing what was going on in the system and being this human rights activist. The YouTube channel was started in 2007. So we did actually start the first prison blog and first prison YouTube channel. And I think it was facing 200 years that crushed that selfish party person out of me you know I just want to get high get my party friends high not thinking about the harm I'm causing society seeing the horror of what drug use led to in the prison like I said that road of drug use is a very long one these guys with hepatitis C it's slow suicide they know they're gonna die but the whole day revolves around getting the drugs in and hearing were you using stories, drugs in jail no, did you use was, drugs in jail was, no it was my wake. it was the wake-up call I needed because I thought heroin users, you know, lock them up, throw away the key. They're out snatching granny's purses. They like live on the bridges like trolls. But living with heroin users for six years was the best education in addiction psychology I could possibly have got. And when they opened up to me and started to tell me their stories, so many of them, Mark, were victims of adults who were attracted to kids and gone through those horrific crimes. So many of them had been thrown away, didn't even have parents, raised in care, mm. were those adults who were attracted to kids' work, and, and those things still happen. Seeing their parents die, um, the horror stories. And So why were they on the brown stuff? They were on the brown stuff because they were never given the tools to deal with that childhood trauma. And when they got on the brown stuff, that was the first time they felt this warmth and all mm -hmm. the stress and all the trauma and all the tension melt away. And society looks down at these people as the scum of the earth. But they're actually, there's an innocence about them and they're, out, they're mm -hmm. victims of these predators. And we, we need to deal with it differently, I think. A coping escapism. And in terms of your, you are you know, very much an advocate of, of child abuse. You know, you're out there, you know, talking about it. You yourself have come under quite a bit of, uh, pressure from the authorities in terms of how lucid you've been why is that you know wh what is it that makes you that campaigner around child abuse and paedophiles well something happened to me mark when i was a kid um in relation to my first girlfriend's mom and you know after that i started getting involved in drugs and stuff i'm not trying to make excuses for what i've done and it's nowhere near as bad as the things i've heard from people i've interviewed so I can understand my girlfriend actually contacted me about ex-girlfriend. This was when I was like, you know, 13. Ex-girlfriend contacted me um, 
a few years back and asked me if her mum had done that to me and I said no because I'd never told anyone I'd held it inside myself and it was all coming back to me for days and in the end they had to tell my parents and, and tell my ex-girlfriend that it had um but uh yeah so I understand that when horrible things happen to young people um, you know when me almost getting beat to death by the drunks they left me for dead you know knocked pieces of my teeth out with an iron bar to the head when I was a teenager uh, you know people go through trauma when they're a teenager they don't understand psychology they don't understand therapy mm. they don't understand the aftershock and the PTSD and you know it was, it was only finding a the great therapist that helped me understand that so that's part of my mission the other thing is interviewing people you know like pure evil dad her her dad basically had her born so he could do those things and when the cops came and opened the diary he kept he kept the diary of every time he'd done it what date rape substances he'd used on her and rated what he'd done mm. and i was i was this was the only time mark that I, I was in a podcast and i literally felt the blood leave my body and i got so cold i had to put my coat on i was freezing i just felt this woman's pain so it's something I'm passionate about. If you don't mind, I'd just like to take you back to to the abuse that you suffered. So you suffered that abuse. Was it how long did that go on for? Um, it only happened one time. Okay. Yeah. And when you look back on it now, what happened? So a couple of years ago, you know, you you finally spoke about it. Has anything well, you've done with her? I've not spoke about it. I've not spoke about it. You've I've not? Only told. No, I've only told my parents and, and my ex-girlfriend uh, from back then. And so have you confronted her? Have, has anything happened to her? She's dead. She's dead. Yeah. And what made your ex-girlfriend ask you whether something had happened to you? She just messaged me out of the blue and said that other people said it had happened to them. Right. One of the very interesting things in terms of sexual abuse is, of course, when it's a female to a male, and very often female uh, sex offenders don't get the same level of custodial sentence that men do. They get dealt with very differently. And, of course, by and large, it is males that offend more than females. Have you looked at that aspect of the offending behaviour and, and given it some thought? Yeah, we've interviewed people on that subject. And, you know... It's it's um it's hard to compute for a young person what's actually happening and you know when you just you've not started having sex properly or anything it's yeah it's a weird situation. And would you say at the time you knew that it was wrong? Um, you're conflicted because you're so immature. Mm. And is that what drives you now? I don't want to say that one thing drives me and I don't want to say that one thing is a, an excuse for my criminal behavior and drug use. I think that when you interview people, you learn that the factors that drive people are so complex, mm. you probably couldn't even get them all out in a five hour podcast. So I would say it's a contributing factor. I think also You've done the ecstasy, any they're taking all the ecstasy made me, uh, very empathogenic it's like you feel people it's, i think my, my brain's been rewired you've been on an incredible journey and obviously an awful lot has happened in your life how have you 
dealt with that personally. You know, the the world is much better now at acknowledging mental health in relation to men. And, and I've had my own trauma, certainly in the last you know, few years, where I got very, very low and, and certainly had a breakdown. But in terms of yourself, have you been there? Have you had to go and get help? Do you get help now? So I got excellent therapy uh, towards the end of my incarceration with, uh, in my book, prison time about 10 percent of it is my therapy sessions because this guy was in eastern into eastern philosophy into neuroscience and i really clicked with him most of the prisoners wouldn't speak to the therapist because they felt that they would just write something in your file that would be used against you which was probably true so this guy had a lot of time on his hands and i i, I really enjoyed our sessions and he just taught me so much that i fall back on to this day i read over a thousand books in just under six years a lot of philosophy a lot of psychology you say to me sean it's great you're reading that stuff, but come in with some quotes from these books that we can use in your life. And I got obsessed with the Stoics. I got obsessed with Nietzsche. And I really enjoyed these uh, philosophical discussions. Also, you know, cognitive. Uh, we're disturbed not by things that are happening around us, but by our thoughts and what they make of it. So someone can jump in your face, threaten to kill your entire family. You can get in a fight with that person. You can just think this person's mentally ill or they're having a bad day and walk away from the situation. And it's the people who react the most, who get picked on the most, and you see that in schools with bullies, you see that in the prison yard. So we really do have this powerful apparatus inside ourselves to control our own destinies and to avoid getting sucked in by the storm at sea. Marcus Aurelius, he compared, you know, um, the madness of life, the chaos of the world as a storm at sea. But he said, be like the promontory, the rocks, the waves are crashing down upon you, but you are maintaining equanimity. So I just feel blessed that, you know, I did three years at university, all finance and accountancy and economics and calculus, but I learned far more six years incarcerated in Arizona, reading all these books on philosophy and psychology and living with people who I would not have chose to have lived with. That gave me the best understanding of human nature and people who've gone through trauma and addiction. And that all contributed to me wanting to go on this mission to expose the system, the prison industrial complex. And, and you know, you've put, I've done the Oxford Union talk twice now. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we did. Uh, the vote was a landslide in our favour. I did the Oxford Union years ago and it wasn't as close. But what that tells me is that the young people now are hip to the evil of the war on drugs. They're hip to the evil of the prison industrial complex. And they want our hypocritical politicians to start making some changes. One of the things that I found very interesting from when you started to talk, you talked about going to want to make your millions. And then as we've talked about that, it was about trying to make more money, seeing the opportunity. One of the things that I'm very clear about and, and I think creates so much so many issues in life is this love of money radix malorum escapiditas you know avarice the the root of all evil is the money is that where it started with you so growing up in a chemical manufacturing town in between liverpool and manchester witness i um never had much but i started to develop these entrepreneur entrepreneurial skills like I mentioned you know running to the the shop and getting the, the bonbons and stuff and I did get obsessed you know and I think as the testosterone kicks in as you're a young man your goals do revolve around having a flashy car having a nice house you think that's going to attract 
you uh you know a cool uh glamorous girlfriend and i think that the media and all these movies and stuff reinforce that and i had to go through incarceration to grow up as a human being and evolve from that people put on google now sean atwood's net worth and it comes up as three million and my girlfriend laughs at that <laughs> i said is that why is that why you got with me because you googled me <laughs> and, uh, every penny i make i put back into the podcasts, um, the books, the mission. And it was all going swimmingly until I started to expose adults who were attracted to kids, Mark, which is the mission you're on. And you're probably going to, may have run into this or may run into this as you become more outspoken on the subject. What you, what you learn is you'd think the whole world will be behind you and that this will be the absolute priority of society to protect women and kids. But the minute you start to expose people, who do harm to women and kids, there are forces of evil that you cannot imagine will gather and try and destroy you, try and destroy your reputation, try and get you incarcerated. I've got a caution now on my reporting of these cases and I will go to prison if I violate that caution. I guess I'm just lucky that they didn't put uh, an explosive device under my car. I'm still here and living and breathing and unable to, to pursue. Um, I've had people try and destroy me as well, just people who have helped, rival podcasters. One in particular out of Scotland, he's got 400,000 subs now. I helped him when he was first starting out. He put videos out to 2 million people saying I was an adult attracted to kids. I was a police informant. I was in a conspiracy with a guy called Wilfred Wong to abduct kids. I was gay. And I had to get a lawyer involved because I'm still getting death threats to this day from the harm that person out of Scotland caused me and the harm that caused my parents. My mom has anxiety and depression. She was having sleepless nights over it. So it's it's been a hell of a journey. Uh, and where's that come from? I know I'm aware you've got to be a bit cautious in terms of how you talk. Yeah. Where Where's that come from? What is it that you've set to expose that has caused those individuals to retaliate? All right. It all started when I... I mean, do you want me to say this on your YouTube channel on a live? Well, stream? just I want you to be cautious. Obviously, it is live, so I, I'd ask you to be you know be careful well, that, in terms book, of the broad book, terms. That book you just you held up, you know, who killed E? Yeah, that one as well. That one as well. Those two books. There's who killed E, and there's elite predators. Um, the content in those books is content that I lost my YouTube channel twice over. Right. And I had, to, I had to take it. We had 60 million views on that content. That content's in those books now. Um, once we started to talk about the biggest names, and you've talked about one who's dead, Savile, you know. Um, we've got our Savile documentary on Untouchable that you, you were the star of. Um, once you start to talk about big names and who those big names associate with, members of the royal family, etc., that's when... The forces of hell are unleashed against you to try and silence you. And what drives you, Sean? What makes you get out of bed in the morning? Well, here's, here's the thing, Mark. You know, I described this mercenary young person who had to make a million by the time he was 30. And now I just wake up, grab a, a bag of monkey nuts, go to the balcony. The squirrels are all lined up waiting for me. Throw the monkey nuts down there. And I just enjoy the day. I've not got this goal where I've got to have this, I've got to have that anymore. 
things just happen. Uh, I've, I've got such an amazing team, you know, Joe and Jane, Joe, the cameraman, James, the sound engineer, my co-host, Jen, uh, Matthew Steeple, Stephen Knight, and on and on it goes. Um, I think that happiness, it, it's, it doesn't revolve around making money. It's, it's who you associate with. It's the people you love. It's your family members. Am I going to look back on my deathbed at all the money I made in the stock market and all the years I spent stirring at computers to make that money? No. You're going to look back at your family, the good times you spent with your friends, the highs and lows of the guests. You know, we interviewed the... In I got the easiest job in the world. Go up and down the country meeting the most interesting people and they tell me their life stories. I am blessed to be able to be doing what I'm doing. As we're pushing towards the end, I just want to ask you some snapshot questions. So make them as yeah, tight a response as possible. So when you look back over your life, what one thing would you change? Oh, you know, the kids ask me this when I do the talks in the schools. They say, would you do it all over again? And I say, I wouldn't do it. I say yes and no. I say no because my mum had a nervous breakdown. She had to have counselling. So, you know, when I stay at my parents' house, I can still still see that hurt and pain I've caused on their face. And I was blessed. They flew 5,000 miles every year to come and visit me in prison. Such a good family support. I say yes because I had to go through those experiences to mature as a person. And it's given me this story that's enabled me to, you know, I've spoke to hundreds of thousands of school kids, Mark. And if I didn't have that story, I wouldn't be doing it. And sometimes I can just feel that connection with them. You know, like it's like like a pin is going to drop. One kid said she was so inspired by my school's talk. She went to do a criminology degree at Winchester University. And her family invited me to the graduation. I've had a few uh, Thai meals out with them. And I get emails from school kids years later saying, you know, I didn't contact you at the time, but... I've never committed a crime since I heard your talk. <laughs> and it's really helped me, you know, make the right decisions in my life. So I do yoga, I do meditation, and I believe in karma. I take full responsibility for putting people on the road of drug use that is very long. When I was off my face, I was thinking I was just keeping the party going. I wasn't seeing the horror of what drug use led to. In the jail, I did see the yellow jaundice skin, the hepatitis C the teeth rotting out, and I felt guilty for putting people on that road, road of drug use. So my mission now, one of them, is to help young people avoid making the stupid decisions I make. And the other thing is, I saw in the jail that the root cause of crime are these predators, and I'm campaigning for the government to reverse the system, let all the mentally ill, the low-level drug users out, and use all those resources to go after people who harm women and kids. What is more precious to society than women and kids? And the government should be doing that, not just causing revenue generation, which I think a lot of the cops we interview, they say I, I, I joined to get the bad guys, the preds, etc. I was assigned to a student group, get them smoking weed and then to make my arrest quotas at the end of the month. That's absolutely sickening. Cops have told us things like that. One cop said he just went to a black neighbourhood to make his arrest quotas, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Hmm. Sickening, sickening. Well, how would we? How do you stop children entering the drug scenario, entering the drug world? Let's stop the trauma. Let's stop the trauma by locking these preds up, 
So they're not creating hundreds of victims who are susceptible to, be to becoming addicted to drugs. Because if you look at the amount of people who take drugs, it's the majority of the population, if you include doctors, pills and everything else, people have taken drugs for time immemorial. But what are the triggers that cause a percentage of them to become addicted? And we've learned that childhood trauma is the main root cause of drug addiction. And then that drug addiction is financed through crime. The women get into sex work, through pickpocketing, shoplifting. The men get into dealing, to robberies, and it gets heavier and heavier on both sides. But from that original root cause of trauma, all these people end up flooding the prison system and then it becomes a way of life for them. And the government needs to stop it being a way of life by going after the Preds, giving the people with the mental health issues, the trauma, the tools to deal with it, referring them from the prison system to mental health, and not just incarcerating human beings in warehouses as commodities for private prisons and all these predatory, parasitic entities, contractors, everything from phone calls to razor wire, making money off the back of it. It's absolutely sickening and it's harming society. Last few questions, Sean. Nature or nurture? Both. I mean, there's, there's in, gene switches, isn't there, that, that nature, um, that the, the environment can turn on, that you're born with the gene switches. So it's a complex interaction of the, of the two from what we've um, studied. Scariest moment you've had? Oh. Probably when the iron bar was hit me in the head and I, I was in the fetal position, my whole body was going warm and numb. And then my eyes were closed and I couldn't feel them hitting me. So I opened my eyes because I thought they stopped with that iron bar still hitting my head. And then I'm getting so groggy. I'm thinking, these guys are trying to kill me right now. There's nothing I can do about it. Your one regret for your family. Oh my goodness. Just, you know, the, put, what I've put my family through when they found out what I'd done, my biggest fear was that they were going to find out. So I'm at it that all my mates, you know, if I got arrested, my mates would bail me out. My parents would never find out. I'd even flown people from the UK and put money in their names and accounts. So my parents would have to, you know, get me a lawyer. But the cops were one step ahead. They put a netbush Trojan horse in my computer, a virus that showed them where all that money was. So that money was confiscated right away. So then I got to get on the phone to my mum. Oh my God, that, that phone call. It was portrayed in the Bang Up Abroad episode. And I can hear the heartbreak in my mum's voice saying, you know, I've got serious drug charges. I'm facing decades in prison. And the heartbreak in my mum's voice. That's, that was one of the lowest moments of my life. And the final question. What do you want to be remembered for? <laughs> I'd like to re be remembered for helping people, for helping the kids uh, through the school's talks. And, you know, some of our podcast guests, they've said it's been a life-changing opportunity for them. They've come on and so many people have reached out to them and they've been able to do speaking gigs, they've got book deals, and it's set their lives on a positive trajectory where they've not gone back to crime. So in my heart, that gives me a good feeling, you know, that we're adding some karmic value to the to this crazy world. Yeah. 
Brilliant. Sean, I thank you so much. Uh, very much a you know, a fascinating chat, really. I've never had the opportunity to to sit and ask you questions and find out your lifestyle, but it's been it's been a massive journey. You know, I hope you continue on your journey, not just in terms of obviously campaigning uh, against child abusers, but also spreading the message. You know, I think people like you are so important because it's very important to tell the youth, the younger generation, that whilst on one level, yes, they can make a lot of money at some stages, but they will eventually get caught. They will eventually be the downfall and the impact on loved ones and on themselves can be catastrophic. It can be so serious, obviously, that they lose their life, but it can be so serious that it has impacts on all those loved people around them. And quite clearly, you, know, you talk in terms of the impact that it's had on you. Any final message? I just want to give a shout out to Mark and your team and everyone who's joined us in the chat. Gyro, John C, Kelly, Claudie and Angie and Phoenix. Thank you for joining us in the chat. And I wish you all the best in your mission. And if you've not seen Mark's stuff on our channel, we've got the Savile Doc Untouchable. We've got his podcast interview and we've got a Madeline McCann one coming out in a couple of weeks, premiering all new content. Cheers, Mark. Thank you. Brilliant. Take care, Sean. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for tuning in for NewsQuest Investigates. That's it for this week. You can go back and watch our NewsQuest podcast from yesterday, which was a fascinating chat with Dan, the reporter from the Mail in Cheshire, and also Mohammed, who spoke in terms of the impact that it's had on him. This is in relation to the recent conviction of Williams, who was a fantasist. This is a person who created an account uh, on social media where she talked in terms of being sexually abused, racially abused uh, and trafficked, not just in the UK, but abroad. This was a matter that was investigated by the police and it resulted in individuals who had nothing to do with anything that she alleged being arrested and in one case being put in jail whilst that investigation was ongoing. It led to individuals losing their business and actually having to move out of the home. This was all in Barron Furness. So please do check that out on our podcast. And of course, today's podcast with the fantastic and the very charismatic Sean Atwood, who brings a fascinating life story, a life story that many people would not even they be able to understand. Actually, it's probably one of films and of books, but in real life, Sean Atwood went through the glamour and then ultimately the fall, the fall of having been caught. And what I would say in the same way as he does is that there is always a fall. Yes, you can ride the crest of the wave for years, but one day you'll get caught. And I say that for everybody, you know, no matter what, after my Savile investigation, one of those people or many people would say to me, why is it you go after the most famous, the the highest profile? When I say, well, quite simply because is that if you can take the most famous down, then everybody is touchable. And I send a very clear message to anybody and just off the back of obviously what Sean's been talking about is if you've committed offences, I want you to sleep very lightly. I want you to be worried that the next knock on the door will be from the authorities. Thank you once again for joining us. Come and join us next week when we have some new guests in relation to our NewsQuest Investigates. But until then, look after yourself and take care. <laughs>